Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. Well, good morning again. Um, I forgot to introduce myself earlier. My name is Taylor Leachman. And uh, I'm the planting pastor here at Advent. And um, as of last week, we began uh, a new a new sermon series on uh, what we're calling the origin story. And it's sort of uh, if you've if you've seen a lot of uh, Marvel movies or, or sort of you know comic book type stuff that's been turned into movies, origin stories are a really important thing. Um, why are superheroes the way that they are? Um, and so. We're talking about an origin story uh, that is reality. Why are we the way that we are? Who is God in relation to us? And last week we talked about uh, Genesis 1, kind of verses 1 through 25. Um, and the first, you know, five, we'll call them five and a half days of creation. Um, we stopped with uh, up until the creation of man which is what we're going to focus on today. And when I say man, uh, I mean mankind, um, because we're actually going to talk more specifically um, about the fact that God created us male and female next week. Um, and, and so we're going to hit home a little bit more on that. But today I want to focus a bit more on what it means that we are made in the image of God. Um, I mean, frankly, I think we could do a sermon series on Genesis 1 for the entire fall, uh, but um, we're skipping over some things, but trying uh, to weight it uh, appropriately. Uh, and so today, we're going to focus on the fact that we are made or created in God's image. So um, if you would, turn uh, in your pew Bibles, if you have them, um, uh, to, I think it's page 1, it might be page 2. Uh, and, uh, and we'll read along Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Would you all pray with me? Uh, Father, we, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for what you reveal about us and about yourself in these passages, uh, in your scriptures. And Father, I pray that as we look at it, you would give us eyes to see. Um, and that uh, as we see and as we encounter you this morning, that we would be changed. Um, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, 
a week or two ago, there was sort of this no-name bluegrass country singer named Oliver Anthony, um, who put a song on the internet called Rich Men, North of Richmond. How many of y'all have heard this song? A few, um, right? Uh, so it was shared and it was shared and then it went like incredibly viral to the point that it has been streamed over 18 million times and that was as of like three days ago. So it probably is higher uh, now. Um, and it's been written about and referenced in almost every major news outlet, and I think it was even referenced, I didn't watch it, uh, but in the GOB uh, debate recently, um, in which he you know, commented on it. Um, but what caused this song to resonate so quickly and so virally, right? What is it about it that made people uh, share it? Um, and some think it was due to the political message that is sort of contained in the bridge of the song, um, but I actually don't agree with that. I think that what caused this song to resonate with so many people was the first verse. Right? He sings in the very first verse, I've been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for BS pay, so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home and drown my troubles away. Right? He so perfectly captures in that first verse exactly even what Michael was talking about a little bit earlier, that kind of no matter what, at some point our work begins to feel like drudgery. Right? At some point, no matter what we're doing in our work, we feel like it has no meaning, no purpose. So we despair and we or dissatisfied with our life. Right? A former factory worker is what he was, and he's lamenting about the state of the workplace. Right? There's no agency for him as a worker. Right? There's no ability to choose things for himself. And not only that, there is no purpose. Right? What is my work actually doing or accomplishing? All I'm doing is wasting my life away, cleaning the same things over and over and over again that my kids continue to get out and make a mess with, right? Or working with the same spreadsheets every day that don't ever seem to get properly filled or just clocking in and clocking out, doing my time so I can go back home, right? And in order to get rid of some of that sense of despair, we go home and we try to drown it away, you know, maybe through alcohol, through drinking, but also through binge-watching a Netflix show. Like, let's just watch enough so that those sad feelings of despair go away. Or try and, like, motivate ourselves with enough positive philosophical thinking and, and doing good so that we don't have to feel that sense of despair. I, and I don't know about each and every one of you, but I know I've had enough pastoral conversations with people where this is not just true of Oliver Anthony. Right? This is true of almost every single one of us. Those feelings come out quite a bit. For Christians, many of us feel that the only way our life brings real purpose and meaning is to do Christian activity. Right? We sort of like split the world into these sacred and secular categories. Right? When I'm at work, um, you know, in the secular place, uh, and I'm just sort of doing my job outside of the context of ministry. It, it, what purpose is it serving? I don't actually know. Right? That is, unless I'm able to use my work to build relationships with non-Christians, so then I can evangelize them, and then my work will feel like it has a little bit more purpose. Or maybe we think, well, 
my job doesn't really do very much, but maybe I can make money to support churches or ministries or missionaries who are doing the real work, right? And then that gives me a little bit more of a purpose as well. Right? Well, and it may not be um, that we struggle with a sense of purpose in our, in our work. It may be even with our hobbies. And so there's all sorts of Christian ways that we try and take kind of our secular hobbies and then try and Christianize them. We try and, and baptize them. Um, I was a, a lacrosse coach at, at a Christian school that every single time it, it felt like we had to have a very public prayer to demonstrate that we were Christians in order to sort of baptize that, that sports playing experience because otherwise it served no real purpose. Right, The real purpose is in the sacred realm, is what we think as Christians. And we try to bring that into kind of our non-purpose-filled life. At least that's what we think. Or if you're not a Christian, right, um, no matter what environment you are in, there is a consistent message again and again and again that whatever it is that we are doing doesn't really have much purpose beyond trying to find some sense of, of short-term happiness. Right? And at, at, at some point, that ends up being fleeting. So whether Christian or non-Christian, we struggle with that sense of purpose. And God is speaking directly to us in this passage, right? where he continues to tell us about how he created all things. And here we see God's creation come to its crowning achievement right? with the creation of mankind. Here, God gives mankind a purpose, and he gives mankind a blessing. And that's going to be our two points this morning. Right? A purpose and a blessing. So first, the purpose. Right? As we talked about last week, Genesis 1 has been building. Um, as I said in my reading of Genesis, right, the book's poetic framework talks about kind of the function of all of God's creation. Um, I'm, I'm no musician, uh, but I love Handel's Messiah in particular. That's probably of like the high class music. That's probably the one I like the most. Um, and, and I particularly love the Hallelujah Chorus. I, I love how the content, like the words, actually match the form. Like that longing that we have that Jesus is our King and that He is coming one day to, to sit on the throne in its fullness. Right? How that's captured in the chorus. I won't sing it for you guys, right? But as a result, um, you know, uh, uh, here, here's sort of the illustration, right? It's said that, that Handel performed the Messiah uh, for the king. And then when, when the king heard the chorus, particularly that, that amazing blend of form and content, that he stood, right? And as a result, everyone else stands. And that's one of the reasons we stand. If you've been to a concert uh, where they've performed it, we stand for the hallelujah chorus now here's the point the messiah which is handel's creation testifies to the glory of handel right to the brilliance of his mind to the creativity of the music to the harmony which he's able to bring together here right it testifies to his glory now you know i'm saying this in in a, in a man in a man-centered way right? of course it testifies to the glory of god as well but that creation speaks to who Handel is. In much the same way, that is what Genesis is telling us. 
that God put all creation together in this beautiful orchestra. You have trees and plants according to their kinds. You have fish and birds according to their kinds. And God has created them. And all of a sudden we're getting to the crescendo of the orchestra. Right here in the crowning achievement of the creation of man. Because then God said, let us make man in our image. And before I get into where I really want to focus our time which is on what it means to be made in the image of God, I need to talk a little bit about this first-person plural. Um, We need to spend a moment on what is being referenced here when God says, created in our image. Because what is going on here? How can a singular God be addressing a plural self? Is this a reference here in Genesis 1 to the Trinity? Um, If so, why does the concept of the Trinity, not really come into, uh, into its vocabulary until more of the first century A.D. Well, most of the time, uh, prior to Jesus, this, uh, this was read with a lot of mystery, but there were two prevailing, um, two prevailing interpretations. Right? Is this the royal we that's being talked about, right? That where the king or queen might have addressed themselves as a, as a we, um, uh, as, a, as a way of referencing themselves and their royalty? Or is this God referring to the rest of the heavenly host, right, where he is addressing the angels and the archangels and all the company of heaven as we say each week in our liturgy? Right? Most of the interpretations prior to the first century were one of these two. Right? And it's not clear exactly which one, but what is mysterious to us in the Old Testament becomes revealed to us in the New Testament with Jesus Christ. Right? And so while the original audience did not see this as a reference to the Trinity, once Jesus comes, we can look back like a good mystery novel and be like, there it was the whole time, right? That's what's going on here. The mystery before Christ was revealed by the coming of Christ. That this was and always has been a reference to the three persons of the Trinity. One God in three persons, unity in diversity. And so God, in his unity and in his diversity, makes man in his image. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that mankind is made to look like God? Right, where sort of this divine body kind of thing, he has a head and arms and and legs in sort of a a spiritual way? Is it it a physical look um, that we look like him? Does it mean that mankind is made with his characteristics, um, his character traits, where maybe not all of them, where we're not omnipresent or things like that, but maybe to a lesser degree we have some of his traits? Like God is love. Well, we love too a little more imperfectly, or uh, God is creative, and, and we create too, uh, but not as, as deeply. Or is this talking about something different? Well, throughout the ancient Near East, um, the king or the emperor of a land would place his image around his empire or his kingdom that he was sovereign over. So you would see different statues um, of, of that king all throughout the land that was a demonstration of the fact that he was king. 
right? But also when an emissary or an ambassador would go to speak to another kingdom, he would bring an image or a representation of the king to demonstrate that he speaks with authority on behalf of that king. So God is telling us here that mankind serves as a statue, so to speak, right? That we serve as evidence that God rules and God reigns. And so more than a description of who we are, right, a noun or an adjective, um, that we are the image of God, it is a description of what we are to do. It's a verb, to image God. Right? We're supposed to image God to the rest of the world. And that's why later in the verse it tells us that mankind is to have dominion. Because we're to serve as rulers on behalf of God. Right? Some theologians have talked about this with the, with the phrase vice-regency, uh, right? which is just another way of saying it's sort of like governor, right? um, where you're not the top dog, right? but you're not on the bottom either. Right? You answer to the top dog, but you have authority and you have dominion. You rule on behalf of God, not for your own benefit or glory, but for His And it's really important that we notice what the word dominion says and what it doesn't. It helps us to avoid two problematic ways that the culture tells us to relate to the rest of creation. While we are to love and care for the environment, this helps us to keep from falling into environmentalism, Where, where humans are sort of seen as the germs or the destroyers and the enemies of God's creation, right? destroying an otherwise perfect world. Now, dominion tells us that we are supposed to rule over creation. Right? We're supposed to cultivate, to grow, to water, to plant. We're supposed to build things and house people and, and cut back weeds. Right? Our, our, we lived in Austin for a while, and our neighbor not for any environmental reason, but because he was lazy, he put up a, a yard sign that said that this was a natural habitat, uh, just so he didn't have to cultivate anything. Right? We are supposed to rule, but we are supposed to, go, to not go the other way as well, which is um, to believe that everything that God created was for our own purpose. Right? We do not have complete domination over it either. Well, we get to use it in whatever way we see fit, where we make the rest of creation bend to our will. Or, like, you know, one, one uh, historic example of this is the way that Americans um, treated the bison, right? Let's just kill them all, make as much money as we possibly can to the point that, that they became extinct, right? Where we consume whatever we want with no thought about what it does to God's creation. No, it says that we're to have dominion. We rule over God's creation on behalf of God. We rule it knowing that one day we have to answer to him for what we have done with it. Because we are made in his image. Well, that sounds great in theory, Taylor, but what does that ultimately look like? I'm not a farmer, right? I'm not uh, a gardener. Um, How do I image him? what do I do? How do I have dominion over creation with the way in which my life normally goes? Um, 
This is probably an old reference uh, for the youth in this crowd, but how many of y'all have seen the movie Chariots of Fire? Okay, a, a decent crew. Um, all right, so it's, uh, it's an incredible movie. It was an Oscar-winning movie, um, and would recommend it to everyone. Um, but the movie is about this incredibly fast Scottish uh, a man named Eric Little. Uh, there, it's about more than that, but I'm focusing on him for the, for the sake of this illustration. Uh, he was a missionary, um, but he was also a track athlete. Right? And throughout the movie, his sister is continually trying to get him to go back to the mission field because for her, that is their purpose. That is exactly what she wants and, and what she believes he needs and wants as well. And so at some point, she lets her disappointment about Eric continuing to run in these meets and continuing to pursue, uh, to pursue another race and another race, uh, what ultimately ends up taking him to the Olympics. So brother and sister have this heart-to-heart where, uh, you know, to, to deal with what she's feeling. And Eric, in a calm and loving voice and in probably one of the most famous quotes of the movie, says to his sister, I won't do it in the Scottish accent. He says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Little is saying to his sister that imaging God is not just accomplished by being a missionary. Imaging God, having dominion, is not just being a gardener or a farmer. It is in doing what God has created you to do and be. So for you students here, it's being a student and learning all that you can about God's world and enjoying and taking pleasure in the fact that he has created it. And as you learn more and more, enjoying that very fact, that is imaging God in being a student or it's in being an educator or a teacher Right, where you can delight and take joy in the fact that you are helping others to learn about that. Or the number of doctors that we have in the room, it's taking joy in the fact that God has allowed you to help other people in their ailments, providing hope and healing and comfort, testifying to what God's world will be like when Jesus comes again. It's in doing the most mundane of jobs with the recognition that that all in this world is God's. And He has created it for us to enjoy it and for it to glorify Him. There's sort of a famous story of, of a janitor at the Camp Laity Lodge, if you all are ever familiar. There's a, a camp out in the hill country called Laity Lodge, and one of the janitors out there, like 30 plus years of, of working there and just always, always having a smile on her face. Um, and they host a lot of pastors' retreats. And at one point, a pastor pulled her aside and was like, just tell me a little bit of why you're feeling so joy-filled. She's like, you know, my delight is in knowing that every time I clean a toilet, it's making it a little bit better for you guys. Right? My, my point isn't, uh, you know, my point is this, that she has found joy and delight that each and every time she cleans, it is imaging the Lord. It is stewarding and caring for what God has allowed for her to do. And she has found delight in that. 
Now, there's some nuancing that I need to do with this explanation because we can't just sort of like acknowledge that all of our work is for God's and sort of feel about that and then do whatever the heck we want to, right? Um, But we are to conduct ourselves how God tells us we are to conduct ourselves. Um, We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So image God where he has called you, and as you do so, know and experience that joy that comes from the fact that he has filled you with that purpose. Because not only has he made you for work, but he has given you that purpose. And he has spoken a blessing over us as well. And so that takes us to our second point and our faster point, which is the blessing. And so I sort of focused on this a little bit last week um, when we talked about how God says after each and every day that it is good and how easy it is for us to skip over that fact. And he does, right? There's there's something beautiful about the fact that he calls it good. Um, And he's describing here, as he's describing mankind, and as he says that we will have dominion over creation and that he has offered us every green thing for food, the author of Genesis says, And behold, God saw everything that he made, and it was good. It's just as easy to skip across this as it is to skip skip across the previous five times that God says that it was good. And in fact, I think um, this was something we talked about a little bit this week in our uh, Bible study about this passage as a staff. And that is that we live in hyper superlative language uh, kind of culture where, you know, you have multiple BFFs. Uh, yeah, which is, it feels a little bit strange to me. Um, or uh, I've heard people talk about, like, there, there's all sorts of goats, you know, greatest of all times. Um, and so it's easy for us in this hyper-superlative culture to skip past what God is saying here. If everyone is special, then no one is special. Um, that's at least how it feels in our culture. But in Hebrew, the superlative is, is just enough awkward for it to cause us to slow down, to pay attention to what God is saying here. Because in Hebrew it reads, and God saw everything that he made, and it was tov, tov. It was good, good. Um, it wasn't just good, it was good, good. That's, that's the Hebrew way of, of bringing the superlative together, right? is to say it multiple times. It wasn't just very good, Although it is very good, it's also unique. As we go through all the other days of creation, we hear that God created the other creatures according to their own kinds. You have the birds of the heavens according to their kinds, the fish of the sea according to their kinds. But humans are not made according to their own kinds. They are made according to the kind of the divine. God did not make us um, according to creation kind. He made us according to His kind. He made us in His image and likeness. And one of the things that's incredibly important to recognize is that no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, all humans are made in the image of God and are endowed with dignity and worth. That's true of the most rebellious of sinners, and that is true of the godliest person that you know, the best person that you know. 
Both are made in the image of God and are endowed with dignity. For some, that image may be a bit more challenging to see at times, right? But it is no less there. And this is one of the reasons that we at Advent want to purposefully welcome any and all to be a part of what we're doing. We want to welcome people of different cultures because all are made in the image of God. We want to welcome people of different abilities because all are made in the image of God. We want to welcome people of different sin struggles because all are made in the image of God. All are endowed with dignity. We're endowed with dignity because as creation sees, uh, because as God sees us, right, um, and the way that the rest of creation looks at us, we operate, live, speak as a testimony as a testimony, so to speak, of who God is and what his character is like. Now, as I say that, at least that's how we were, we were made to exist. As I say that, y'all are like, well, I know a lot of people, and if that's how God is like, that's not so awesome. I, or maybe even, I know myself really well, and if God is like that, that is not so awesome. That's one of the reasons that theologians have often talked about, okay, well, what does the image of God still look like in mankind post-fall? But we reject the idea that it is gone, right? It is always there, but it is marred, right? It's disfigured. It's harder to see because of sin. It's importantly not gone. It is not wiped away. So when someone looks at you and me and our sin, it's much more challenging for them to see who God truly is, right? When we look at each other, it does not paint the most beautiful picture of who God is. Yet God in his kindness demonstrates his character more to us in this exact way, right? Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, drawing on this language, saying that Yes, okay, he is divine, but also, and incredibly important for us as Bible-believing Christians, Jesus is man, right? He is the true man, the man that we fail to be, the one who perfectly images God in his character. And so when we want to know what God is like, and when I fail to make it evident to the rest of the world, we look at Jesus, right? And I confess that this is a hard thing also for me to to pay attention to and to acknowledge because I so desperately want to demonstrate that character to others. I, I want to be like Jesus, but in a way that actually brings honor and glory to myself rather than him. Look to Jesus. Paul says... Um, as we're, uh, Paul says to, to the church uh, over and over again, this is in uh, Corinthians, it's in, um, it's in uh, I'm blanking on other ones, but it's in a, a few of his other letters as well. Um, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And this is an important thing, because as, as, as humanity, what does this ultimately look like for us to image God together? A lot of people will get up there and they'll say, all right, follow me. Do exactly as I do. But what is Paul saying here? He's not saying, be like me. Do everything that I'm doing. He says, imitate me insofar as I imitate Christ. 
So imitate Christ is the point. But we serve as a living reminder of what that ultimately should be like. And when we fail, Christ loves us anyway. Look back to him. Um, Let me conclude with just this final thought. And that is, if you're struggling with a sense of purpose and you're not exactly knowing, uh, I I don't know what God wants for me. Um, I don't know what God has for me. You're not alone. Um, Almost every single person that I've had a one-on-one conversation with feels that way. But pray it to the Lord. But also know that he has made uh, this world for us to glorify him and to enjoy him. Maybe that purpose is just merely to look up at the stars and then to enjoy it for a day. That's okay, you know, especially for this high-achieving room. It is okay to enjoy the stars for a day. It's okay to enjoy your work for a day, knowing that God has made you for it. And it is right and it is good to enjoy Him as He gives us all of these things. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank You for what You have done for us in creation. Lord, that You have made us in Your image. And Father, I pray that as we struggle, as we struggle to, to image You properly, or as we struggle to, to see what you're like as we look at other human beings, well, we thank you for Christ. The true human, the one who is bringing your kingdom now and forever. And so, Father, I pray that we would look to him, our gracious Savior, our brother. I pray all of this in his name. Amen. Amen.